0: The k Up podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. Visit GoBoldly.com. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to k Up. When Tom Perez took over as chairman of the Democratic National Committee, he said his mission was to rebuild trust and rebuild infrastructure. Seventeen months later, with wins in Virginia, Alabama, New Jersey and elsewhere, Perez is confident that the Democratic Party is back on track.
1: We can win everywhere if we organize everywhere. He has more to say
0: about that and his favorite tweet from Steve Bannon right now. Chairman Perez, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Great to be with you. Oh, I should say, come, Coming welcome back. Because the first time we talked, you were a candidate for the chairmanship. And I'm just going to follow my sword. I interviewed you and uh, the person you ran against and thought the other person, you know, said, well, maybe the other person would be better. You won the election. So I'm just putting it out there. And so, in the how long? It's been more than a year now.
1: It's been uh, roughly 18 months. A- 18 February months. February last year. Is it what you thought it was going to be, being chairman? Well, we had a lot of work to do. We had to rebuild our infrastructure, and we had to rebuild trust. Those were the two basic tasks. Uh, we stopped organizing. We allowed our technology infrastructure to uh, fray. Uh, we we needed to rebuild those. We needed to rebuild a, a millennial engagement infrastructure, voter imp- voter protection infrastructure, and we needed to restore people's trust in the party. We needed to make sure that we were listening. And I look 18 months later, and we've made real progress. 43 elections uh, that we've helped to flip from red to blue and in places all over the country. We've become a 57 state and and, uh, territory party again. We're competing everywhere. We invested a lot in Alabama. People kind of thought I was a little nutty, when we did that, Jonathan, but it was a good investment. And we invested there because, number one, we wanted to show we were a 50-state party. Number two, I believed in Doug Jones, a a person I've known for 20 years. And number three, we wanted to make a very strong statement to African-American voters that we will never again take them for granted. And uh, when I look back on 2017, Virginia and New Jersey taught us that we could win again. And Alabama taught us that we could win everywhere. And so we've got a lot more work to do, but I feel like we've made some real progress.
0: So, so you've completely like leapfrogged deep into my in, into my questions uh, by talking about Alabama, Virginia, uh, New Jersey. Uh, so let's just go, let's just go there. Those wins, uh, particularly in Alabama, were such a shot in the arm for Democrats who were still deeply demoralized by what happened in the 2016 elections. Why did you think it was imperative to get the Democratic National Committee involved in a race that everyone said right up until the moment it was announced that Doug Jones won, that the Republican um I can't even remember the man's name. Roy
1: Moore. Right Roy, <laughs> Roy a man Moore who
0: will live in infamy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Except for in my mind, my memory, that Roy Moore was going to win, one because he was a Republican and two, eh, it's Alabama.
1: That well, was the mindset. Sure. I mean, and let me back up for a moment to Virginia because Virginia was a month before Alabama mm-hmm. and we were doing both. We And the key is to invest early uh, because— Define when, invest. When we, we invested in organizing. We invested about a million dollars in Alabama and it went into grassroots organizing in the African-American community. We invested in a number of consultants, African-American businesses who— One helped us organize with African-American women. One was focused on faith communities. One was focused on business communities, building out a a program that President Obama did in 2007 called uh, Barbershops for Barack. Going into those small businesses where all the local influencers sat and making those investments and making investments in technology. In recent months, we've purchased 94 million cell phone numbers. So, the voter files of all these states are are much more robust now. And, and we contacted via text messaging about 1.4 million voters in Alabama uh, to get out the word about Doug Jones. And, and we were part of a broader team. And in Virginia, the same way, our, our new mission is to help elect Democrats up and down the ticket from the school board to the Oval Office. And in Virginia, it wasn't only about uh, Ralph Northam. It was about helping to elect people uh, such as Justin Fairfax, the lieutenant governor, uh, Mark Herring, the attorney general. And then we ended up winning 15 seats in the House of Delegates, and we would have had a tie but for a coin flip. There was right. one race that was quite literally a tie, and we didn't practice flipping a coin or however they do it because <laughs> we lost that. But th- I think the key was, again, organizing, and, and that, this is responsive to your question, we don't spend a penny on television. All of the money that we raise at the DNC is spent on building that infrastructure, the technology infrastructure, the the organizing infrastructure, the voter protection, the millennial engagement infrastructure. That's what we're spending money on. And what we were able to do in Virginia, again, was to show people that Democrats can win again. Same thing in New Jersey. And then Alabama was really showing people that we could win everywhere. My favorite tweet of 2017 came from a guy named Steve Bannon. (laughs) <laughs> on, on December the 13th. And he said, and I basically quote, referring to the DNC, you got to give the devil its due. Uh, the DNC came in. They, they helped organize a stealth ground game. G- ground games are how you win. You got to give the devil its due. And and one of the keys to our success in Alabama is that not only did we invest early, but we invested quietly because uh, we couldn't tell the world what we were doing because it would have hurt Doug. Mm-hmm. You know, you know,
0: You talked about uh, investing in a ground game, investing in people, really, doing things that would get the vote out, and specifically the African-American vote. There has been this tension still, I think, within the party, not maybe DNC, but among Democrats in general. Who should the party focus on? Should the party focus on the, quote-unquote, working-class voter, read white voters who turn to Trump, Or should the party focus on um, what's recognized as the base of the party, which is African-American voters, voters of color, who, for the most part, sat out the 2016 election and certainly sat out other down ballot elections? Do you see that tension in your work as chairman? And how do you
1: and how do you address that? I'm asked that question with great frequency. I understand why I'm asked the question. And for me, it's a false choice. We have to do both and then some. And and we have. In Alabama, I've given you that example. I'm just as proud of the work that we've done in helping Connor Lamb win his race in the 18th Congressional District of Pennsylvania. That was a really important race because those were— Obama, Obama, Trump voters. Some people would call them Reagan Democrats. They came home, and they came home because Connor was talking about core FDR issues. He was talking about health care. He was talking about the right to form a union. He was talking about pension security. We can win everywhere if we organize everywhere. We've invested immensely in in Alabama. We've invested early in Georgia to mobilize rural African-American voters because our experience has told us that when you're trying to win a statewide case histori- race historically in Georgia, oftentimes the focus was only on the urban areas, even though a third of African Americans live outside major metropolitan areas. So we've invested, uh, we've done both and then some. We have a we've we've done a lot of work investing in rural pockets of states, and and the way the reason we're able to succeed everywhere is because there's so much overlap between the issues that people care about. Right, healthcare is the number one issue in this country. In urban, rural, uh, suburban America, it's it's the number one issue with uh, voters across all socioeconomic and racial backgrounds. And when we talk about the fact that we're fighting uh, to reduce the cost of prescription drugs, we're fighting to make sure that if you have a pre-existing condition, you can still get health insurance. We're fighting for your opioid-addicted loved one and And they want to do away with coverage in all of these circumstances that 's how we're winning races when we lead with our values and and develop authentic relationships. uh All politics is personal. Joe Biden often said, and he's right we're not just coming in in the run up to an election and showing up at the uh, the church or the Elks Club or Uh, Whatever, four weeks before an election, we're building long term relationships and we're fighting for the issues that people care about. That's how we're winning. You know, when
0: I interviewed Stacey Abrams a year ago now, she was making this exact this exact point. um, One, the campaign can't just show up three weeks before the election and then disappear, that the campaign must be an ongoing engagement but also the, this idea that she during the primary banked put all of her eggs in the get out the base her message is for everybody but not trying to convince republicans to vote democrat but convincing democrats to come out and vote for democrats
1: absolutely and and, and what's what we have to uh understand. And, and I'll give you an example. Uh, Doug Jones's race, he had to do a couple things. If you look at a typical statewide election over the last 25 years in Alabama, the African-American vote was roughly 24 and percent of the people who actually voted. Doug needed to raise that numerator to about 29 and percent. And he did just that. That's called getting out the base. At the same time, and, and one of my heroes, Reverend Barber, mm-hmm. who was down there campaigning for Doug, you know, he referred to Doug's fusion coalition because at the same time, Doug needed to talk to white voters. And the, the good news is that Doug's message of I'm, I'm fighting for health care. He, he wants to fight the culture wars. I'm fighting for good jobs and better wages and affordable health care. And so Doug held his own among white voters. Stacy is doing the same thing in Georgia. And Georgia has uh, I mean 8% of Georgia are are now Latinos. And uh there's a huge population, emerging population of Asian American voters. In, in addition to the white voters in the state and and Stacy is has such a remarkably eclectic background. I mean she a small business leader, civil rights leader, daughter of you know parents of faith who um, you know had a church in Mississippi. I mean She wears her faith proudly on her sleeve. They just had a big event at the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, and the Georgia Chamber of Commerce refused to endorse the Republican. They didn't Hmm. endorse her. But, I mean, that's just a rite of passage down in Georgia (laughs) that the chamber endorses the Republican candidate for governor, and they haven't done it because they understand that Stacey's vision of governance, that inclusive vision of opportunity for everyone, is, is actually, I think, better suited to, to business growth.
0: So you talked about the lessons that you learned working with Doug Jones in Alabama. What about the—what lessons have you learned? Has the party learned uh, take you back to Virginia or even in um, Stacey Abrams' race for the primary, the gubernatorial primary in, Jan- in, in Georgia?
1: Well, I'll tell you the lesson of Virginia that has been adopted almost everywhere across the country. It's what I call flooding the zone. I coach basketball. You put If they're playing a zone defense, you put two players in that zone and they can't cover both players. And, and the analog in politics is run candidates everywhere. In uh, Virginia, over the course of the last three or four House cycles, there's 100 seats in the House of Delegates and they were only running candidates in like 40 of the seats. So they're already seating the majority before Election Day. This time around... They ran candidates in almost 90 of the seats. And as a result of that, and they were spectacular candidates, by the way, as a result of that, they were able to create this synergistic relationship because all these candidates had their own organizing apparatus. They were helping Ralph Northam up the, up the ticket, and he was helping them down the ticket. And, and so you see, you, you go over to Ohio or to Georgia, in Ohio, they have fielded a candidate for every state Senate seat and every state House seat. And when you do that and compete everywhere, you're expanding the playing field. You're, you're running up uh, the base. You, you're not going to win every seat. But if you lose a seat in a, a certain pocket of the state by eight points instead of 30 points, that adds up over time. So one of the lessons of Virginia is compete everywhere, with good candidates, and we're doing that across the country, that's going to help us win state houses, and that's going to help candidates up-ballot, whether it's the senator who's up for re-election or election, or the governor.
0: You know, um, what is it called? Um, run run for Something um, is the, the, the big organization. Have you see, seen this level of activity in all, all your years of being in politics, the number of people who are coming out to run for something, to run for office?
1: Never. And it's amazing, and it's inspiring. The 15 former members of the Virginia House of Delegates were all white men, replaced by 11 women. And this is the year the women, this is the year the woman at scale, mm-hmm. uh, 2018. And those 11 women included the first two Latinas, the first... Asian-American, the first openly transgender member of the Virginia House of Delegates. I met a woman and we supported her named uh, Harold Tippernini. She's running for Congress in the 8th Congressional District of Arizona. She was inspired by the Women's March. She's E.R. Doc, mother of three. Her kids said, what are you going to do, Mom? (laughs) She ran for Congress in a district that Donald Trump won by 25 points. And it was a special election occurred about three months ago. And she didn't make it to the mountaintop, but she cut a 25-point advantage down to 4.5%. And she's running again. And there are Harold Teperninis all over this country. And and we've talked about Stacey Abrams, but you have Paulette Jordan running to be the first Native American woman ever elected. uh, She's running for governor of Idaho. Uh, You see the candidate quality everywhere. And candidate quality matters. I mean, Roy Moore um I speaks mean. for himself <laughs> right. but Doug Jones also speaks for himself he's a truly authentic leader who is has integrity is fighting for the the residents of Alabama and and, and that's one of the big areas when when we talk about the lessons of 2018 and the Democratic Party's comeback candidate quality uh, will be a big part of that story.
0: Can you talk more about when you were mentioning the, the person who was running who who didn't win but cut the lead of the, of the Republican? One of the things that Democrats do oh so well is to not be able to see the victory in, in defeat. And so recognizing the fact that Cutting the lead of, of a Republican candidate from 40 points to four is a, is a huge victory. Or in the John Ossoff race in Georgia, he lost that seat. But the fact that he was even competitive was a
1: huge, huge deal. Well, let me finish the story of Harold Tippernini because mm-hmm. it, it illustrates your point. We helped her to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars for two reasons. Number one, we believed in her. Actually, there's more than two reasons. Number two, you got to expand your risk tolerance threshold. We can win everywhere. And then an additional reason, which was critically important, Jonathan, is that Kirsten Cinema is a member of Congress running for the U.S. Senate in Arizona. She has a real shot. And when we were investing in Harold's race, we were playing chess in that race because She lost, uh, Harold lost by four and a half points. You have a larger turnout in a general election. Uh, I'm confident that her margin is going to be somewhere between four and a half and a victory. And if you're a Republican running for the Senate in Arizona, you got to run up the score in the 8th Congressional District because that's your base. And we have been talking to voters there now since the beginning of the year. We've been building those relationships. We haven't run a House candidate there since 2012, and if Kirsten Cinema loses, let's just assume she loses the Eighth Congressional District in November by four points, and only four points, she'll be the next senator from Arizona. So our investments are designed not only to help uh, Harold, but to help. Kirsten and other Democrats running in that district. We've got to build relationships in every zip code. That's why our partnership with our state parties is called Every Zip Code Counts.
0: Um, I was having a conversation with some young politicians of color. We were at the German Marshall Fund, uh, Brussels Forum. So we're in Europe and these young people, um, they were so... It's so impressive. And one was a uh, African-American mayor of Douglas, Arizona. And we were talking about the upcoming, the 2020 presidential race. Who's it going to be? Who's going to be the one for the party? And I said, you're making a mistake. Democrats always make this mistake of wondering who the one is going to be rather than let everybody let everybody run, and then you figure it out. But then the other thing I said is, stop thinking of the party as the DNC the party is you the party is Democrats and I it got me to on this whole thing about how the DNC actually was very smart in Alabama and Virginia of not coming down from on high from Washington telling the states what they should do um, but Recognizing that the activism and the grassroots energy was something that you just, you, you help, you want our help, Here, here's, our, here's our help. Is that the way the party has always been? Or is this a new posture of the Democratic National Committee, of the party uh, taking a back seat to the grassroots activism on the ground in localities?
1: I'm a big believer in uh, culture. And, and when you asked me what was the job about, it was really about culture change. And one aspect of the culture change is to recognize that we're part of a broader ecosystem. And it's so important when you're in that ecosystem to walk into every situation with a healthy dose of humility. The most important question we asked Doug Jones was, how can we help? And the answer in that case was, I need you to help invest early and I need you to help invest quietly. So frankly, Jonathan, I got some calls when that race was heating up from from donors and others saying, "Why haven't you people invested? Or done anything <laughs> right. in uh Alabama?" And, and I would quietly explain and they and and they would immediately get it and they say, "Oh, that's very interesting." And that was indispensable. Uh we've worked with local uh Uh, Indivisible Chapters, for instance, who don't have a chief technology officer like uh, we do at the DNC, but helping them to develop tech tools so that they can more efficiently use the 300 volunteers so that the data that they collect when they're knocking on doors is getting into the voter file. Um, That's the culture that we're trying to build, the how can we help Uh, the situation. And I I still coach team sports. i got three kids. I've coached at least a dozen years one of my kids. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, I know this sounds kind of hokey, but, you know, there's no I in team. And and that is the culture that we're trying to build uh, at the DNC. And it's really exciting to watch what's happening across the country. I mean, uh, I th- I was in Wisconsin recently uh, with Tony Evers, who I think is going to knock off Scott Walker, and and the work that um, uh, the the party chair there, a woman named Martha Lanning, is doing is is just uh, nothing short of uh, spectacular, and and we're part we're proud to be part of that team. Uh, we're we're not at we're you know I don't I don't need to be at the driver's seat, but we want to play an important meaningful role in making sure that people can win, and that's what we've been able to do. Uh, In races across the country.
0: The K Pup Podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. So here's to the fearlessness to fail so success can follow, and to the patients helping to find the breakthrough that might save their lives and perhaps one day yours. Welcome to the new era of medicine, where together, we go boldly. A message from America's biopharmaceutical companies. Visit GoBoldly.com. Okay, so we spent a lot of time talking about um, infrastructure. So I want to get to the uh, and rebuilding infrastructure, uh, as you mentioned at the top of the interview. And now let's talk about the other thing, and that's the rebuilding trust. What was the trust that was eroded that need, needed to be rebuilt?
1: Well, I think people lost faith in the DNC. Uh, we we lost a lot of elections, and uh, we did it in a way that made people feel like the process wasn't fair. And so from the moment I got there, I understood that it was really important to bring people together. 90 seconds after I was declared the winner in the election, the first thing I did was ask Keith Ellison to join the party as uh, a deputy uh, DNC chair, because neither of us wanted to see half the uh, participants walk out disappointed. We have to come together. And that's a timeless journey, the journey toward unity. And, and we did, We took some important actions at our most recent DNC meeting toward that end. It was about the the Unity Reform Commission was established at the Democratic Convention in 2016. Its mission was to rebuild trust by making sure we have recommendations on how to expand participation in primaries and caucuses And how we make sure that the process of picking the next Democratic Party nominee is a fair process. Can you
0: please explain to me, I think I I got it, the situation with the superdelegates. Sure. Are they
1: gone? Superdelegates are not gone. What we did, and we passed this overwhelmingly at our most recent DNC meeting, is that superdelegates will no longer vote on the first ballot unless the outcome has already been decided by the voters. Here's the problem that this solves, and it's an important problem, Jonathan. We are a week out, assume, for this conversation. We're a week out from the Iowa caucus, Mm -hmm. and we're in the old system, and nobody's cast a vote across America yet. And we have, uh, let's assume, we have a dozen candidates for president. And you look and you see the CNN tracker, or the AP tracker, and it shows candidate A, already has accumulated 400 delegates to the convention. Nobody's cast a vote yet. And, you know, in a, in a race where, you know, we might have a dozen or more candidates, all but one are not going to make it to the mountaintop. And my goal for 2020 is to make sure that everybody feels like their candidate got a fair shake and their voice was heard at the polls. And what this reform does is a week out from the Iowa caucus, nobody's going to have any accumulated superdelegates because superdelegates aren't voting on the first ballot.
0: Um, but they're not voting on the first ballot at the convention or at the caucus?
1: This is where this is where I
0: get confused.
1: Well, you don't vote until the convention formally, but you can announce that you're supporting candidate X I see. Uh, Before on day the- one. <laughs> and, and, and I it, got it. You know, and if I'm um, if I'm an underfunded but really qualified and energetic grassroots candidate for um, president, and this other candidate already has 300 delegates to the convention before a vote has been cast, I think a lot of people look at that as well. That's that's not fair, and and I think it's really important as we move forward to look at some of these mega trends. I mean, you, you look at young people. When Barack Obama was elected president, the most typical millennial voter was a registered Democrat. Now, by almost 10%, the most typical millennial voters are registered unaffiliated. You go to a state like Colorado and put age aside for the moment, uh, the most typical voter, period, in Colorado is a registered unaffiliated. Voters may share our values, young people may share our values, and I think they do on just about every issue. That's why we do quite well among young people. But we could do much better. We could grow the party further if we were taking the steps to demonstrate to them that we're returning par- power to the grassroots. And, and that's what these reforms do, is return that power to the grassroots. And again, I, I want to underscore something I said before. Superdelegates have never decided who won the Democratic primary. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, right. Right. And that's why I'm wondering, why was there a need for a reform of the superdelegates program when in the last in the last Democratic primary fight the Hillary Clinton won the won the nomination just based on delegates
1: re- received through votes? So but the, again, superdelegates have never superdelegates have been in place since eighty four. Superdelegates have never determined who won the nomination. At the same time, superdelegates have had an absolute impact on people's sense of whether the process uh, was fair. And and again, you know, nobody's voted in Iowa. Mm -hmm. We're about to start the season. And one candidate is already, you know, uh, 20 percent of the way up the mountaintop. And that raises real questions of fundamental fairness. And, and when you talk to young people, and we spend a lot of time talking to young Democrats of America, uh, high school Dems and others, and, and they look at this uh, issue of superdelegates and, and they ask the question, uh, why in the Democratic Party, the so-called party of the people, you know, why did you have this uh, system of superdelegates that seems like it is a statement that you don't necessarily trust us. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, it, it's, you, there's a lot of uh, data that has demonstrated that you know, this issue has been a real stumbling block in earning the trust of voters. And, and that's what 2020 is about. We, we have to make sure we build a process that everybody feels not just comfortable with, but excited about. And that's what we're trying to do. And wasn't there, weren't there reforms to the caucus system? Absolutely. One of, one of the challenges I have in describing everything we're doing is everybody wants to talk about superdelegates. <laughs> and, and, and I understand that because those are important reforms. Equally important are the reforms we've undertaken to make both primaries more accessible and caucuses more accessible. We have been uh, incentivizing folks to move to primaries whenever they can. And 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 the fact of the matter is there will be more primaries and less caucuses in 2020. I believe that's a good thing because primaries have higher turnout mm-hmm. and we're trying to get more people to participate. Those states that continue to have caucuses and and it's it's now only I mean, a handful. Um there's I, Iowa, I there's Kentucky. uh no, there's Iowa, there is um Nebraska uh, Idaho still has mm-hmm. one. Um, a few other states are are moving away. Nevada uh, is another. But those states that are retaining caucuses, they are taking really important steps to ensure that they are more inclusive. So if you're a shift worker, for instance, you, know, you shouldn't have to win the boss lottery to be able to vote. Or, <laughs> or if you're a veteran who's deployed, you ought to be able to Uh, vote absentee. And so there's a number of efforts that are being undertaken. We're we're very strongly encouraging same-day voter registration. Uh, We want to make sure that if you meet a candidate, you become enamored with that candidate, that the rules don't prevent you from registering as a Democrat. If you live in New York, for instance, you've got to change your party affiliation nine months before the primary. That's that doesn't make sense to me, and <laughs> and that's going to change next year. I'm confident. Uh, I think there's a lot of momentum in New York to change that. But that's what we're doing.
0: That's a state legislature. Exactly. So that's nothing that the DNC. That's not a has. DNC
1: rule. It's a, a lot of what we're doing is really trying to incentivize uh, parties to really go to their states and and make sure that these changes are put in place. In some states where you're controlled by Republicans, uh, they're gonna it's going to be a little more difficult to do that. But we want to make sure we're encouraging. Uh, same-day registration. We want to make sure we're incur- encouraging um, early voting, all of these things. We want to make it easier for eligible people to vote, not harder. We want to make it easier for more people to participate, and we want to be more transparent. That's what the Democratic Party is, and that's what all these reforms are designed to do. And and one of the things that heartened me in our debate uh, that we just completed was the we we had a passionate discussion and that's what democrats do. Yeah,
0: I was going to say um not everybody was happy with with the well, reforms, but But we yeah, came together.
1: I mean the, the reforms were passed overwhelmingly. I I we should never shy away from having uh important difficult conversations and we don't. And we must never confuse unity with unanimity. Uh we don't if when I talk about unity I'm not saying you have to agree with everything Uh, that I say or everything I believe. But what we saw in this debate was people came together. And and when I'm talking about people, we we had an eclectic group of folks, people who supported Secretary Clinton, people who supported Senator Sanders. Howard Dean was engaged. Tim Kaine was engaged. The labor movement was a leader in uh, these reform efforts, especially the superdelegate efforts. And and somebody said to me something that I found very um, heartening, which was, uh, as As we were reaching a, a lot of the final stages of these uh, discussions, if you had beamed somebody in from Mars, showed them the debate, they watched it, and then asked them who they supported in the past, you wouldn't have been able to tell because everybody was focused on the future and and this is about the future it 's about growing our party it's about earning that trust it's about learning from the past but not being imprisoned uh, by the past and and that 's why I 'm confident. Uh, that these reforms are going to help us grow the party and and help continue the momentum uh, that we are are seeing mm-hmm. going into the midterms.
0: Um, in 2020, do you think the Democratic Party might have a problem of too many people running for president?
1: Well, I'm I'm actually uh, excited about the fact that there are so many qualified candidates. I, I I've I've often asked, well, oh my God, we don't have a bench. I I hear that question a lot. And my reaction to that is, wow, you haven't met some of the governors and mayors and uh, senators and members of Congress and business leaders that I've met. Uh, When you have more people, it it undeniably raises some challenges. And and frankly, it underscores, in my judgment, the importance of ensuring that we enact some of these reforms that I've just discussed. Because if you have a 15-person field, again, 14 of them aren't going to make it to the mountaintop. And, and for me, as the chair of the party, our mission is to make sure that everybody feels like their candidate got a fair shake. And that was the problem with the superdelegate issue. It, it created this sense among many, including but not limited to young people, that uh, their person was disadvantaged from the outset in an unfair way. And, and so that's one change we're doing. You know, we're going to make sure that we're very transparent about a... Uh, debate process, so that people know in advance. Uh, there's so many things that we They're are not going
0: to be on Saturday, Saturday night or on NFL football Sunday right. <laughs> well, night all, competing.
1: And we're, we've are we already begun conversations with uh, networks, and, and actually, we're getting data on uh, participation rates. So if you held it on this night, you know what was the participation? Because again, our goal is to make sure there are as many eyeballs as possible in many as many years. Listening, uh, you know, via, uh, you know, the, the internet mm-hmm. or however else people listen, and that's what it's about. And I'm confident that uh, we can build a system that will be fair to everyone.
0: It sounds to me like we're going back to the 2008 campaign. It, it's fun when I talk when I talk to people where they're like, "Oh my God, we're gonna have so many people running, and we really need to have one candidate." And I look and I say. Do you not remember 2008? Remember those debates? There were so many Democratic primary debate debates and the stage was packed with candidates. And I said to them, remember, that's the process that gave us President
1: Obama. So are you sure you don't want as many people to run as possible? And it's the process that gave us a battle-tested Barack Obama. Right. And you go back Just to take your very important point to another historical moment, you know, post 1988, there was a lot of uh, angst and bedwetting, you know, in the Democratic uh, Party about, oh, my God, you know, we're going to be the permanent minority in the executive branch. We have no bench. We have no future. And boy, there was a bevy of candidates that emerged and we were able to uh, win the election in 1992. I welcome that. Uh, entry into the campaign of, of these diverse voices, and I think we're going to have that. And, and again, the job of the DNC uh, in this process is twofold, and they're equally important. Number one, to make sure the process is fair in fact and fair in perception to everyone. And number two, equally important, to make sure that whoever wins the nomination has the infrastructure to hit the ground running. The organizing infrastructure, the technology infrastructure, the voter protection infrastructure. We fell short on both fronts in 2016. We're not going to fall short uh, again in 2020. And these reforms that we just did uh, are an important step, by no means the only step in that direction. Have you, has Michael Avenatti reached out to you? I have not spoken to him. I understand he was at the DNC meeting that uh, we just had, but I, I did not. Uh, interact with him.
0: I just figured I'd ask since, you know, he's making trips to Iowa and putting out these big tweets about, you know, the Democratic Party and uh, and the president aside from his from his lawsuit uh, with Stor- uh, on behalf of Stormy Daniels. But I just figured I'd ask. I'm, I'm well, You
1: know, at- <laughs> again, uh, I will leave it up <laughs> to the voters to decide who the nominee is. And uh, anyone who calls, we will always answer the phone and give uh a fair assessment uh, of what we're doing to
0: mm-hmm. everyone. Um, one of the things um, in what you were talking about in terms of um, the two th- the, the, the two jobs of, of the democratic, of the DNC, of the democratic national committee made me think of the hell the DNC went through during the, the 2016 presidential campaign with the Russian hacking. And um, there was a, a bit of a scare, at least on Twitter uh, I can't remember which news organization had the story that a phishing ph fishing expedition had been thwarted a hacking had been thwarted um, uh, at the DNC and it turned out that that was some sort of it was like a, a drill or an exercise
1: right and, and this happened uh, roughly uh, a week ago and what it for me illustrated uh, was that our defense mechanisms are well in place because everything that we've been training to do in our preparedness and exercises, we did. It turned out that we first got word and and we got word because our new chief cybersecurity officer is spectacular. He used to be the chief cybersecurity officer at Yahoo. Uh, he, when he got there early on, his name is Bob Lord. He was the one who uncovered the Russian hack into Yahoo. And so he understood Uh, the footprints of uh, a Russian intrusion. And he's part of a broader ecosystem of cybersecurity experts. And because of that, uh, he got word one evening, it was uh, midnight, he gets a call, uh, we're seeing suspicious activity. The good news is it turned out to be a false alarm, but it was phishing activity designed to go after the voter file. And that's our crown jewel at the DNC. And by the way, the, the, the uh, indictment from uh, the Mueller team most recently that involved the DNC, uh, the hack of the DNC, also showed that they were trying to get into uh, secretaries of state and to local boards of election. Uh, they want to they want to influence elections and they want to attack the uh, the heart of state and local election structures in addition to the DNC. And so. Once we uh, heard of this and got wind of this, uh, we immediately took all the appropriate protocols. And it, it was the equivalent of a false alarm. If you, if you talk to a first responder, whenever the alarm bell goes off, you immediately um, activate your work. And I'm relieved that it turned out to be a false alarm. And, and what it was, uh, was uh, folks, and we've been really training people to have a um, cyber-consciousness uh, cybersecurity consciousness and we've been training uh folks to make sure that uh, you know they're 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 uh, doing their level best to ensure their own preparedness and and it turned out that it was uh uh it was not a uh a bad guy <laughs> if mm-hmm. you will um and so we we always learn from these things but for me the main lesson we learned is that all of our uh systems that we've put in place worked because quite literally Uh, Within moments and these there were three or four different companies that we were working with all of whom had the same alarm bell sounding uh, in in their system, and so uh, one thing I know for sure is um, I'm heartened that that was a false alarm But I'm also equally sober about the fact that this stuff's going to continue to happen Mm -hmm. because they hacked us once Uh, They've interfered before there's no accountability from this White House Uh, and And we're on our own because they're not providing help to state uh, to states who need help. They're not going to provide help to us. This this wasn't simply an attack on the DNC in 2016. It was an attack on our democracy.
0: Is it not astounding to you that the current administration and the current president don't view it this way, it seems Um, that this was an attack on our democracy, and yet it all gets uh, uh, holding Russia accountable and ensuring that this doesn't happen again in any election gets all balled up into President Trump's view that any kind of conversation about this questions the legitimacy uh, of his presidency.
1: I've stopped saying, isn't it unbelievable that? Because I would have (laughs) thought that in the aftermath of the passing of Senator McCain, that we wouldn't be debating whether to put the flags at half-staff. Uh, as somebody right. who worked for Senator Kennedy, who was one of Senator McCain's close friends in the Senate, uh, I mean, that's that's beyond a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a tribute to the life of a uh, uh, of an American hero. And so I no longer ask those questions, isn't it unbelievable? What we do instead is... Make sure we're prepared. We're we're not we know that we're not gonna get any help. This we are at war right now. It is a cyber war. It is an unrelenting war. And it is a war that requires us to have twenty-four-seven attention. When you have a war of this nature being carried out by a foreign adversary, our most serious adversary in the world, we should have a cyber wartime cabinet, but we have a commander in chief who doesn't take it seriously. And and that is unconscionable. But we're, we're not going to sit around and wallow in self-pity. We're going to hire people like Bob Lord. We've built systems with, uh, with partners so that we are as cyber secure as possible. At the same time, it'd sure be a heck of a lot nicer if we had a real partner in the federal government. Are you surprised,
0: again, putting your hat on as someone who's been in the political arena for a while, is it surprising to you that your um, uh, your counterpart on the other side, the, the folks in the Republican Party have not um, have not challenged their own president, have not held them accountable, have not held him accountable, have seemed to gone gone mute in the face of things that I'm old enough to remember were anathema to um, Republicans and certainly the 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 Grand Old Party, as it was once called. Well,
1: let's be blunt, Jonathan. The 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 Party of Lincoln is dead, and uh, it's been replaced by the Party of Trump. Uh, I mean, I think it was Dr. King who once said, uh, "To ignore evil is to be an accomplice to evil." I don't talk much about Trump anymore because people know what he's doing. I I, I think what what is most unconscionable about our current moment in our nation's journey to form a more perfect union is the appalling silence and capitulation of Republicans on so many issues. I mean, you, young kids put in cages and separated from their parents. The uh, you, you, you ripping away coverage for people with pre-existing conditions again. Uh, so many uh, moments here where we're doing things that are not only counter to our economic self-interest, but counter to our values as a nation. And, and that is why these elections are so important on November the 6th, because we're not simply fighting for health care. We're not simply fighting to uh, make sure that uh, pharmaceutical companies are held accountable. We're not simply fighting for public education and so many other areas. We're, we're fighting for our democracy. Uh, this is, I believe, the most important election of our lifetime, and and the reason why I'm not <laughs> spending a lot of time at my house right now is because uh, we we're organizing in all fifty states, Jonathan, and we we've got to get everybody out to vote. If if there's a silver lining to the moment in time that we're living in, is I really do think this has become a movement moment. Uh, people understand that history has its eyes on us, uh, and people understand that democracy can no longer be a spectator sport. And that is why so many people stepped up. You asked me a little while ago about the number of people running, um, especially women. Uh, People are stepping up in big ways, and we've just gotta make sure democracy is never a spectator sport. And we've gotta make sure at the DNC that we do everything in our power to remove barriers to participation, whether it's uh, barriers to voting, whether it's trust barriers, uh we 've got to make sure we're doing that day in and day out and and that's that's what our job is about i w- when when we win elections good things happen to good people People ask me what I miss the most about being labor secretary it's helping people at scale and i'm watching people get hurt at scale right now and it breaks my heart uh because uh, government can be a force for good and and right now uh it's not Tom Perez, chairman of the Democratic National Committee,
0: and as you said, former secretary of labor under President Obama. Thank you very much for coming back to the podcast.
1: It's a great honor. And we're going to get out and win some elections this November.
0: Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.
1: If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try The Daily 202's Big Idea a show that brings you daily analysis from political correspondent James Holman. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com podcasts. The Washington,
0: Washington, Washington, Washington Post. Post.